everybody, welcome to Been Thinking About You, the show where I reconnect with those of my past who are doing cool things. Today, for our series finale, we are joined by Ella Verkler, a diabetes advocate who's been living with type 1 diabetes for over six years as of now, and was a participant in the most recent Junior Diabetes Research Foundation's Children's Congress, where she, alongside other children living with type 1 diabetes, spoke with Congress members to promote the importance of dedicating resources to fund life-changing therapies for those with type 1 diabetes until a cure is discovered. Ella, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? how are you? Good, thank you. So Ella and I met back when we lived in Singapore, and I actually do not really know too much about your life prior to that. So I was wondering you could describe your life before Singapore? Yeah, so I'm from North Carolina. I grew up on a farm where I rode horses competitively, and we had a beef cattle operation. So we raised and bred cows to be sold in a sustainable way to different restaurants and friends for meat. So I was diagnosed with diabetes in fifth grade when I was 10. So I've had it for seven years. And yeah, I moved to Singapore in getting of seventh grade and moved back end of eighth grade. And I'm back in North Carolina. Yeah, just kind of living. What made you come to Singapore in the first place? So my dad got a job that was centered in Singapore, but he traveled a lot. So since Singapore was such a centralized location to the areas he had to go to throughout Asia, it was easier to just live in Singapore. So we went there and we lived there. Yeah. Huh. And for viewers who may not know, could you describe difference in life between Singapore and the United States? Oh, it's uh, crazy, really. So in Singapore, as you know, Ryan, obviously it's hot all mm-hmm. year round. Where I live in North Carolina, we get all four seasons, usually within one week. So there's a lot of difference in just like the weather. Also, people's attitudes here are a lot different back at the school where I have been in since I was in pre-K. So I've known all these people for a really long time. So it's kind of different people's attitudes here when they know you really, really well versus in Singapore. I mean, just being able to move around in Singapore, just going wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted, and economically, because you have the MRT and the buses, whereas here you have to drive everywhere. It's pretty different. (laughs) Yeah, I think for both Washington and North Carolina, there's cleaner air, too. Yes. Oh my goodness, the pollution, the haze in Singapore was crazy. Did it ever die down from that year? Because I remember, was that year the peak or did it just kind of stay that way? It stayed pretty bad. Oh. For viewers who may not know what Ella and I are talking about, basically what happened in Singapore is that nearby in Indonesia, they were getting rid of already harvested crops so they can make space for new crops by burning down the roots that was already gone. But because we were nearby, the CO2 that emerged from that, it was so much, it came all the way over to Singapore. And it even went as far as I remember all the way to Australia. That's how bad that air pollution was. Living with that was quite interesting. If Ella, you have any add-ons, feel free. But I just remember on the worst days from either like not being allowed out of school or not being allowed to have physical education classes outside or just bring air masks to school. And the fires, silver, led up into the sky to cause rain. The theory was when it's raining, the pollution will go away. Yeah, the pollution season was usually a third of the year, and it was stopped right when the rainy monsoon season started because the rain would basically wash away everything and move out all the haze clouds through the mountains. Yeah. For living down near the equator, a monsoon season is like the equivalent of snow days, basically. But with rain, yeah. Yeah. Could you also, on the flip side, describe any similarities between life in Singapore and the U.S.? hurricane season in North Carolina is a lot like monsoon season with like just the amount of rain that you get. It's pretty similar. There's usually less structural damage during a monsoon, at least in Singapore, because all the buildings were built 
to withstand the monsoons, whereas in North Carolina, they aren't really built that way. The biggest similarity is during the summer in North Carolina, the weather is really similar to how it was year-round in Singapore. Yeah. One now to a bit more how you mentioned earlier that you're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Before we dive a bit more into that, could you explain to listeners who may not know what that is, what that entails? So yeah, type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease that originates just due to your body's DNA and genetic switches in your DNA that can be activated by any number of diseases. The biggest one is hand, foot, and mouth. There's still a lot of more research going on about the exact way that type 1 diabetes develops in people, but it's not something that can be prevented, and at the moment, it can't be cured. So basically, your immune system attacks the insulin-making cells in your pancreas. Insulin facilitates sugar, glucose in your blood to be broken down into energy. So if you don't have any insulin in your body, your body will slowly start to eat itself until it shuts down your major organs and you die which is not exactly the way I'm planning on going out. So I have an insulin pump. Other people do insulin injections. So an insulin pump is a needle in you at all times that delivers a constant drip of insulin, similar to an IV, except the insulin pump isn't intravenous. It's just in tissue, so it's a little less painful. I also have a continuous glucose monitor, which tests my blood sugar every five minutes. And as of three days ago, I also have a service dog whose name is Magpie, who can smell blood sugar changes and alert me to those changes before serious complications arise. First off, Magpie is incredibly adorable. <laughs> Thank you. For those who don't know, Magpie, I believe, is a black... Is it a Labrador? She's a black lab, yes. Hey. So, could you describe how the whole process with getting Magpie is going? What made you want to get a service dog in the first place? I first heard about diabetic alert service dogs about five days after I was diagnosed seven years ago and started bugging my mother incessantly for a service dog. And what finally prompted her really to like get me the service dog was that I'm going off to college and she can't come with me. And the service dog works really well to basically be a parent that is there to help out and can retrieve things when needed, can make sure that nothing bad happens. So there's a really intense application process that involves essays, obviously background checks, and then you go through a couple of different trainings, and then ultimately you're matched with the dog. So that match arises from both the dog's reaction to you, your reaction to the dog, your home life, the size that the dog needs to be for travel, so many different things that go into the matching process that I don't truly understand. But I'm very happy with what has happened, and I have a really cute dog who works really well to make sure that I'm healthy, happy, and keep going. And for listeners who may be curious, how is Magpie trained so that way, if something's going on, Magpie can alert you to it so you can best address it? So Magpie can detect blood sugar changes through scent. Whenever she notices a high rising in blood sugar, high dropping, or a high blood sugar or low blood sugar, She basically runs up and jams her nose into my leg multiple times, which kind of feels like someone's punching you in the leg a little bit, but we're working on lighter alerts. So as a result, you're very aware of what's happening and you can be on top of what's happening and testing your blood sugar and correcting if necessary. And so how are things going at training camp as of right now? So I've been in it for a week now and I still have one more week. We've learned all the cues so Magpie can open doors for me, close doors, go and get juice for me, which works really well in case I have a low blood sugar. 
go get help is a good one where she can run down and get my parents. She can open cabinets, fridges. She can turn on and off light switches. She can help me if I'm like unable to walk when I'm low, which happens sometimes because your muscles are shutting down. She can be there to provide like just someone, you, something you can hold on to when you're really low. So by low, I mean low blood sugar, where there's literally not enough sugar in your blood to be converted into energy. So you don't have any energy and your muscles are just, and your muscles and organs are just slowly, like, not slowly shutting down. And then you usually fall into a seizure. Huh. And Magpie is allowed to go home with you after each training? Yeah, she comes with me. Uh, she's going to be going with me everywhere. So she's home with me right now. Huh. She's going to start coming to school with me once I go back to school. She's going to go to college with me. She flies with me everywhere that I go. Nice. So going a bit more back to your original diagnosis with type 1, could you describe the moment specifically when you learned that you are diabetic and your reaction to the news? So it was fifth grade, December. It was five days before school let out for winter break. So everyone was like really ready, excited for it to happen. And I got pulled out of typing class because that was a thing. And taken to the doctor and they were like, just come really quick. Like, don't stop. Absolutely don't eat and just get her here as quickly as possible. Don't worry, but don't stop, which obviously freaked my mother out. So she came and got me, and we went to the doctors, and they, like, did a couple of tests, and then the doctor goes, so you have type 1 diabetes, and my mom starts sobbing. I don't know what's happening, so I just assume I'm going to die. So I'm going over to being like, oh, it's okay. Like, I've had a good life. And so they finally, like, explain what it means, what's happening, and how I'm going to have to basically be in charge of making sure that I stay alive every second of every day. And uh, that was interesting. It's not exactly the easiest thing to hear when you're 10 years old. So usually, after diagnosis, the patient is taken immediately to the hospital. But for some reason, we didn't actually end up going to the hospital. We just came home and had to figure it out ourselves, which was not the best decision, in my opinion, but wasn't mine to make. And so we learned how to do injections, how to test blood sugars, how to count carbs, because you have to do that for everything that goes into your body. You have to know what's in it. That's not saying that you're not able to eat some things, but you have to know what the nutritional information is of everything that you put in your mouth. So yeah, just coming home and then learning how to dab myself every day. And within two days, I was just kind of like, okay, if someone's going to end up stabbing me, it's going to be me. So I took over everything and kind of was in charge. Didn't take any days off school, just went back after the weekend was over because I was diagnosed on a Friday. Went back to school on Monday and, you know, just took care of what needed to be taken care of. In an old Instagram post, I think, uh, not too long ago, you mentioned how while diabetes has raised a lot of challenges for you, it also has led you to a lot of opportunities. And one of those opportunities, which I want to talk to you about right now, is back in February 2017, you attended University of Virginia's Magical Night for a Cure event. Could you describe to listeners what that event entailed? So the Magical Night for a Cure is also known as the JDRF Gala. Pretty much every chapter of JDRF puts on a gala. So the local chapter of mine is actually one of the highest fundraising galas. But the one that I went to that you're talking about was up in Virginia. And it was hosted by some family member of mine who I didn't actually know until after I was diagnosed It was all really cool to know that I had a diabetic family member, but it was like my mom's, grandmother's, cousin's, grandson, not really related. Well, it is related, and it's complicated. 
so we ended up going to that gala and it's a silent auction and a live auction so they auction off things like puppies and big expensive bottles of wine and nights at beach houses and there's lots of speeches and meet some really cool people and have some pretty good food and then you just have fun I've actually been a JDRF ambassador at a couple of galas, which basically means preparing things, making art projects that are going to be auctioned off, and then making some speeches. Last year, my family was the promotional family for the gala, so we had this big camera crew coming over, videoing us, doing interviews with us, and interviewing my brothers, my friends, my parents and just then talking about how important it is to raise money because while diabetes is something that can be managed, it's not easy and it's not inexpensive. Especially with the rising cost of insulin right now, sometimes diabetics have to make the choice between staying alive and being able to feed their children, which isn't a choice that I think anyone should have to make. And luckily, there has been a lot of money donated to try and lower the cost that comes with taking care of a diabetic and keeping a diabetic alive. But all of that happens through lots of hard work and lots of advocacy and trying to get laws passed that are actually going to help put a ceiling on how much people can charge. We'll get a bit more to all that stuff in a minute. Going back to the event, do you remember the cool people who you met at that event? Not really. I mean, I was just super excited to meet some long-lost family members, so that was pretty fun. Off the top of my head, no. I have met some pretty cool people through the Children's Congress that I did, but I was just at the JDRF, the UVA uh, JDRF Magical Night for a Care Gala. That was just really being able to reconnect with family members that I didn't know I had. Yeah. Well, as we already know, you are heavily involved with the Junior Diabetes Research Foundation, JDRF. So how and when did you initially discover the organization? And could you tell listeners a bit more as to what the organization is and what they do? Yeah, so I first got involved with JDRF basically the day after I was diagnosed. They gave you this thing called the JDRF Bag of Hope, which is given out to all newly diagnosed diabetics, and it's a blue backpack filled with numbers that you can call, people you can like email or reach out to on Facebook, and they give you this cute bear. His name is Rufus, and Rufus the bear is how you practice giving injections. So, you know, you're 10 years old, you don't know what's happening. They're telling you that you're going to have to like put this needle inside of you. And they give you this cute bear to practice on. And it says Rufus the bear and it has JDRF on the side. So obviously I was like, that's great. What's JDRF? So I went and I ended up doing some further research and figured out basically what JDRF was, what it meant and how important it was to diabetic research. And usually within a couple of weeks of diagnosis, if you opt into it at your endocrinologist appointment, the doctor will give your information to someone to reach out to you through JDRF as like a support group. So JDRF funds tons of different research. They fund it personally, and then they also go out and try to get funding through the special diabetes program, through foundations, other things like that. And they have such a huge just impact on everyone who's a type 1 diabetic and it really also provides people that you can ask questions to and so many different helpful resources. So JDRF has garnered $414.5 million of research, has personally invested $121.5 million, and has gotten $31 million through other funding, $80 million through industry partners, and $182 million through U.S. and international government funding. 
So the U.S. and international government funding is actually what I went to go secure over the summer, which was $150 million from the special diabetes program from the U.S. government over the next two years. So, yeah, and they are doing research in artificial pancreas, beta cell replacement, in reducing complications, in immune therapy. So one of the biggest reasons why pancreas transplants aren't done. So the pancreas is actually what's part of what's destroyed in a diabetic's body. And the biggest reason against doing pancreas transplants is that while your immune system might not reject the pancreas, it's super likely to actually go back in and then just kill off the insulin-making cells like it did before. So they're trying to find a way to prevent that from happening and even of just regenerating the beta cells, the insulin-making cells in the pancreas. And so now I want to talk a bit more about the JDRF Children's Congress. So what made you initially want to participate in it? A couple years ago, Nick Jonas was there. Thought it sounded fun. <laughs> um, yeah. So Nick Jonas is a type 1 diabetic, so he's done a couple of different events for JDRF and for some pump and continuous glucose monitor companies. So a couple of years ago, he was there. He wasn't there when I went, which is okay. I met some other really cool people. So that was a big motivator. Another reason was that I haven't really met a lot of diabetics my age. And the JDRF Children's Congress is 150 type 1 diabetics who are under 18 years old who have been through a lot of what you're going through and know what it's like to have to leave class because your blood sugar is crashing or try to like maneuver driving when you can barely keep your eyes on the road because you're about to go into a seizure and just do all these crazy things and get through it. And also, I really believe in what JDRF is pushing for, finding a cure and making life easier for people with type 1 diabetes and for making it more affordable. Because, you know, no one should have to die because of something that's easily managed if you have enough money. Yeah. What was the application process like for the whole event? I think it was four different essays, maybe. A couple of background information writing letters to senators, representatives, being active in your JDRF chapter. And then also you had to make this video about why it was important and what you want to specifically talk about. And also be comfortable with sharing your diagnosis story and the story of how your life as a diabetic is going. So I watched the video and throughout the video, even throughout this interview so far, you've mentioned how it's very important for our government to ensure accessible insulin to all diabetic people. No one should have to die over something that's easily can be treated. Could you get a bit more in depth to our listeners regarding the current state of insulin pricing in the U.S.? Yes, I can. I actually have a PowerPoint that hey. has some on it. Yeah, I know. I'm really prepared. <laughs> Legit. Yeah. So basically a little bit of background information. Artificial insulin was first manufactured in the early 1900s, and the patent was originally sold for $1 because the person who created it believed that no one should have to die because of something that is easily, easily taken care of. But as a result, all these big companies are able to hike up those prices. 90% of the global insulin market is controlled by three different companies, and there is no reliable generic insulin. So there's no alternatives. You have no choice but to pay $275 for a vial of insulin that in Canada would cost only $32. Like, that's crazy. That's over $220 in a difference. And I personally use three vials of insulin a month. And if my insurance didn't cover that, that could be really, really expensive. So for one month, that would be $825 
let's see, 12 months, that would be $9,990. And I've been a diabetic now for seven years. So my family would have had to pay $69,300 over the past seven years to keep me alive just on insulin. That's not including the cost of needles, CGM, pump sites, test strips, prickers, glucagon, just so many different things that go into keeping a diabetic alive. They really, really, really add up cost-wise. Yeah. And I think even in the video, too, because you mentioned no one should ever have to die because of lack of access to insulin. And unfortunately, many people have. And one person that you referenced specifically in your Children's Congress video was, I believe, Shane Pratchett-Doyle. Yes, Shane Patrick Doyle. And you mentioned how he passed away back in 2017 after his GoFundMe page fell short of paying his insulin by $50. $50, yep. It's pretty self-explanatory, but could you also talk about the importance of ensuring price controls for insulin? Yeah, so one of the biggest reasons why other countries such as Canada and the UK can have insulin at such an affordable price is because of price controls. And it's not like by implementing price controls, these companies aren't breaking even. Like, it only costs about $1.50 to manufacture a vial of insulin. So even selling it for $32 seems like a lot to me. But selling it for $275 is a little ridiculous. So we need to implement a ceiling that will make it so drug companies can't overcharge. Could you describe your experience at the whole Children's Congress? Yeah, so the first day you're just kind of meeting everybody and they bring in some pretty cool people. They bring in some diabetic police officers. They brought in this one type 1 diabetic FBI agent who's super cool. And she showed us all these pictures of her on like the SWAT team with her insulin pump and being able to do all these super cool things. And it was super cute to see all these little five-year-olds being like, whoa. And I also was just kind of like, whoa. But seeing the little kids was a lot cuter than some weird 16-year-old. And then they bring in a couple of actors who have type 1 diabetes. So one person who came in was Victor Garber. So he was in Titanic and the DC Legends of Tomorrow show. So he is a pretty cool guy and he's been a diabetic for about 60 years now. So they brought him in and we talked to him. Another person was Jennifer Stone who played Harper on Wizards of Waverly Place. He's a type 1 diabetic. And so they brought these people in and you could just see all the things that they were able to do even though they have diabetes. So yeah, and then the next day you go and you start talking to senators and you have meetings with representatives and there's testifying on Capitol Hill, which was pretty cool. So I myself didn't actually get to testify. They only have about two or three people. And then Victor Garber testified and then the head of the National Health Institute in diabetic research was there as well, as well as the head of GDRF. So they all did testimonial on Capitol Hill, but we were all in the room watching and listening which was pretty cool. And then there's TV interviews. And then you go and meet with your senators and representatives and try to convince them that your right to live is just as important as anyone else's. It's not as easy as you think. Mm. And when you talk more about interviews, were you interviewed by like news outlets or did you interview yeah. other people? Okay. News outlets. Could you describe what that experience was like? Terrifying. Terrifying. They have these really bright lights on you and you can't really see anything and then there's this person in the background who's asking you these questions and you're not supposed to look at the camera you have to look at the person who's asking you these questions but the entire time there's this bright light on you and you're yeah it was uh it was interesting fun was not prepared didn't have any makeup on thought i looked like a slug that's the fun about a radio show you could look like whatever look wherever yep 
So were there any specific policies that were brought to your attention? I guess again, like capping off insulin prices or whatnot, do you know is what was proposed? So the primary focus of that was getting funding for the special diabetes program. So it's being proposed $200 million. Since October, we've gotten $97 million, which is awesome. So we're just trying to get that pushed through. So the special diabetes program itself is a bipartisan issue. The only problem is that it's clumped with some other bills to be passed through that aren't very bipartisan. So it keeps getting pushed back on voting, which is unfortunate, but it is a way that government sometimes works. Yeah. Do you have any follow-up as like, other than that one as to how any proposed changes and any more progress they have made raised on the issues and solutions you and other participants proposed? So it's been sitting on the floor, being waited on, and nothing's been happening yet. Unfortunately, they seem to have some other things on their mind, but I'm sure they'll get to it. Are there any other opportunities of note that you've been able to experience, like result from like JDR platform or anything else that you think is really cool and want to share? There isn't exactly a bunch of big things that I think are super cool that I've been able to do. There's a ton of little things, though, that I've been able to do. I've been able to go to different companies and talk to some people that actually have an impact on the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. I've spoken at BG, which is what manufactures insulin supplies, and spoken to the people there that are trying to develop more comfortable needles and needles that don't rip through your skin when you walk through a door wrong. And to try and make life more comfortable, I've done tons of things with little kids to try and talk with them through how while diabetes sucks, it's not the end of the world, and there are so many things that you can still do. There are just so many things you can do, and you're not just a diabetic. You're an athlete. You're a researcher. You're a princess. You're a doctor. You're a prince. You're a, I don't know, a dog. I don't know. What is something that you want to tell our listeners in regards to how they can help those in the fight for great accessibility to insulin and to just be a better ally and friend to those with diabetes? I would definitely check out the JDRF website. There are many places that are actively raising money for providing insulin for all. You can buy shirts that help benefit JDRF. You can write a letter on behalf of you to your senators, which is super important. You can go to JDRF.org and sign up to be a JDRF advocate, which isn't a lot of work. It's just adding your name to the list of names of people who care about this issue and do think that just because you have a disease doesn't mean that you should have to go bankrupt or bankrupt your family or make the decision between keeping yourself alive and paying your rent. Yeah. I remember in your video, too, you mentioned how one of the ways that diabetes is, is not as fun, to put it lightly, is that it's caused you to miss opportunities like to go on field trips or maybe have sleepovers with friends or whatnot. And that got me thinking of a comment that another guest on this show mentioned, Lillian Elmore from episode two. She mentioned how it is important to foster inclusion for all and let people themselves determine how to best adapt to a situation based on their circumstances. For example, because like she's in a wheelchair rather than have people not invite her to parties because they don't know how to accommodate her for that. They just tell her, hey, I want you to come to this event. Then she herself can figure out how she can adapt to do things. Do you feel that a similar concept applies to those with diabetes? Of course. I really think that applies to everyone, you know? If you're never sure if someone can do something, just ask. Don't assume that they can't. 
you're not going to hurt someone's feelings by saying, hey, is this good for you? Can you do this? I mean, it might get a little annoying, but there shouldn't be a reason for you to just assume that someone's not going to be able to do something, you know? People with disabilities or people with feelings, we want to have fun, we want to be able to go out, we definitely want to hang out with our friends, and it's no fun to always be, I wouldn't say, like, ignored or pushed away, but just kind of tiptoed around, you know? I don't like to be tiptoed around. I have thick skin, I can take whatever you're going to throw my way, but throw something my way. (laughs) Don't just ignore me. Yeah. We actually have time for this, which is great. So I've seen on your Instagram that you are an avid horseback rider. Yes. So is it from just like simply living on the farm, as you mentioned, are there any other more specific reasons or ways that originally got you into horseback riding? My mom rode horses growing up, and I was put on my first horse when I was two months old and been riding since I was three. So it just seemed like a natural progression to keep doing. I don't even actually ride anymore because I play lacrosse now, but I rode for so long and it was a way for me to bond with my mom and bond with my grandmother because we all rode and we would all go out together and do different things. And it was really fun to be able to be somewhere and just be so connected to an animal and feel that you were really part of this group that you might not be the most powerful one, but you were the one in charge. I think I also remember too from a post you mentioned how you hope to someday become a wrangler in Carbon County. Yes. How's that been? Uh, slow going. So I went out to a ranch over the summer a couple of years ago, and I did a lot of horseback riding out there. And they'd ask me once I turn 18 to apply to become a wrangler, which would basically mean going out and riding as my job over the summer, tending to the horses, making sure everything was all right, taking people out on rides, galloping across the fields and getting hundreds of horses into their different corrals and so much fun. So I really want to be able to do that. And I think Magpie would have a lot of fun out there. Yeah. And so you mentioned also with lacrosse. You've also been doing that during Singapore as well, right? Yes. I was on the national lacrosse team for Singapore when I was there, yeah. And similar questions in the fact, like, what originally got you into the sport and your favorite, most fulfilling thing about it? My cousins. So my mom's cousins, technically, although they're closer in age to me, they all play lacrosse. They're from New England. So big lacrosse people. And when my cousin came down to North Carolina to play lacrosse, he got me into it. And I was just, I loved it. Then I was on attack. So I was an offender. So I was shooting on goal, gave the goalie a concussion, felt really bad, took over as goalie for the week and loved it so much that I've been doing it ever since I was nine, 10. So yeah, just really loved once again, being able to be part of a team and having fun and hitting people. My favorite part was probably had a couple of lacrosse tournaments in Hong Kong, which was pretty fun, being able to talk with people. So it was an international lacrosse tournament. So we had the national team of China, Australia, Malaysia, I think Malaysia maybe, Hong Kong, and Thailand, I think. I'm not 100% sure, but we ended up winning, which was really, really fun. And I was named MVP for my team, even though I was 10 years younger than everyone else on the team. Nice. Could you describe it more about your visit to Hong Kong and what it was like for you there? I was only there for a few days and I was playing the lacrosse the entire time, so I didn't really get to see Hong Kong much. But it was really interesting when I was there because of all the tensions, especially between Hong Kong and China. I mean, just navigating a different political landscape was really, really cool. Yeah, like when did you go to Hong Kong? What year was it? 
2015 and 2016. So uh, I went twice. Okay. Yeah, since I remember, like, I lived in Hong Kong, and I left right before the Yellow Umbrella protests began. So I think I left right before it really got started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. All right, well, Ella, this wraps up our time today. Before we sign off, where can people find you and keep up with you? For my diabetes Instagram is T1D underscore Ella. So you can check out my Instagram there. And yeah, Instagram is really a good place to find me. And I'm going to start posting again more. I've just been a little busy. All right, guys, this wraps up our episode for today. Go check out Ella's Instagram. Give us support and check out the JDRF website. Go show them a bunch of support. This wraps up Been Thinking About You. Thank you all so much for tuning into the series. Take care and goodbye.